mitigates your risk a lot. And that's also a way of following trends. Let them sort of create the trend and then you hop onto it and ride it as long as you can. And as long as the trend is working in your favor, stay with them. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I'm pleased and honored to be introducing you to Trevor McGregor. You recognize his name. He's been on the show multiple times. Just search Trevor McGregor, Joe Fairless, and you'll hear his interviews that I did with him. And he has a lot of value during those interviews. Well, he's had a lot of value in my life. For the last five years... I have hired him to be a consultant to help me with my real estate business and just personal stuff too as a life slash business coach. And he's taken my game to a different level. Before I hired him, I had four single family homes. And oh, by the way, I was also single. Fast forward to today, my company controls over $300 million worth of real estate. And I am happily, happily married. Clearly, results are going to vary, but he has helped me in five years do things that I didn't even have on my radar. So I suggest that you speak to Trevor McGregor if you're looking to take your real estate investing business to the next level. If you've had success and are looking to build on that success, then he's your guy. Go to trevormcgregor.com or coachwithtrevor.com and you'll be able to apply for a conversation with him, coachwithtrevor.com. We used to do a free consultation. We got too many free consultations, and he actually is pretty full with his consulting program, and he's very conscientious about the value that he adds. He wants to add tremendous value, so he's being very selective with the people who he does work with. So go to coachwithtrevor.com and apply to have a conversation with him, and then you two can decide if it makes sense to work together or not and hire him as a consultant. It has impacted my life in a tremendously positive way. Him and his wife have gone to my wedding. Trevor's been to my conference a couple years, and I know him well, and I suggest that you get to know him as well. Coachwithtrevor.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Robert Danker. How you doing, Robert? I'm well. Thank you. Well, nice to have you on the show and I'm glad you're well. A little bit about Robert. He is the president of Prime Manhattan Residential, which is a real estate brokerage firm focusing on Manhattan's luxury residential market. He's got more than 25 years of experience as a real estate investor in New York City, and his team has executed nearly $200 million worth of transactions on both the buy and sell side in 2017. Based in New York City, New York, with that being said, Robert, you want to give the best of our listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. Just very quickly, I'm an ex- Wall Street trader. I spent many years trading interest rates, currencies, and metals, about 10 years on Wall Street. And when I started making this money, I started investing in real estate. To fast forward a bit, my business partner, who's currently one of my oldest friends, we were investing together for many years. And he decided to start a brokerage firm when I wasn't active in the brokerage business, but I financed it. We continue to invest together. And I have sort of leveraged my Wall Street experience being a a student of the markets and a trend follower into understanding how to unlock value, create value, and buy and sell, I think, better than most. And as a result of that, have built arguably one of the most powerful boutique brokerages in Manhattan in terms of what we do here. My small group is probably in the top five or seven largest 
producing brokerage groups in Manhattan, luxury market and residential. And we also have a concentration in the commercial market as well. Oh, great stuff. Lots of follow-up questions. Let's start with being a student of the market and a trend follower. You're able to unlock and create value. Can you tell us how you do that? Well, as an example, the trend is your friend. And a, a good example of this is we actually started Prime Manhattan Residential in 2007. Obviously, in 2008 is when the markets collapsed, the real estate market, the equity markets, etc. And as a rule, you know, I grew up on Long Island and I was surrounded by a lot of very wealthy people, most of whom were in real estate. And frankly, most of them were not very smart, but they were all very, very patient. And one of the things that I understood in 2008, for example, was that what was happening was a once a generational event that happened once every 15 or 20 years. And if cool hands prevailed, there would be an opportunity for, a, I guess the best way to say it is a, a massive reset. And if I was wrong, then I would have been on bread lines with everybody else. But over time, Manhattan real estate in particular has been tried and tested and is true. And the trend is your friend. And this was a reset. So as a, a way to compel both users and investors to not disregard what was happening in the environment, but not to be afraid of it, was an opportunity to grab and create more value than you'll have an opportunity to do in most 10 or 15 year periods because of this massive reset. So that's a good example of understanding that the trend is more powerful than momentary events. And if you can recognize trends and understand that they're sustained and sustainable, then you can operate and, and think carefully around short-term events that make cloud ones thinking. Do you see any short-term events coming up in the near future based on your analysis? Well, in any market, any asset class, whether it's real estate or equity markets, things just can't go straight up or straight down forever. I wouldn't profess to be able to time markets. Nobody can. But the equity markets are at a point where I'm sort of hoping that they'll correct soon because they've been moving in a parabolic state. But I think what's going to happen is real estate, particularly Manhattan real estate, I think is going to be the beneficiary of what I think will be ultimately a slight reset of the markets. The reason for that is, again, it's a different asset class, but it's in the ground. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can use it. You can rent it. And again, with patience, a combination of whether you're a user or you're an investor, patience should pay. And I think values will continue to build on themselves, create more long-term value. And I think we're at a particularly interesting point in time. So the thought process of things can't continue to go up and things can't continue to go down, there's ultimately going to be correction. And during that correction, just keep a long-term view. Anything yeah. specific within that that you look for? I know you said you don't time markets, but any fundamentals that when you start seeing some of those fundamentals change, it starts raising a red flag in your mind? Well, when the fundamentals change, you have to think a little bit more carefully. What I mean specifically is when things are going well, it's very easy to make money. And when things are going as well as they are now, even in the real estate market, although prices have stabilized a little bit in the luxury market, north of 6 to $8 million plus, but an area or a category that has been moving well, but is sort of not paid as much attention to because the buyer base is smaller is, for example, the Greenwich Village townhouse market. 
The Greenwich Village townhouse market has been moving at a pace that's probably 50% faster than the condo or co-op market, specifically because there are less of them. You can't make more of them, unlike a high-rise. And although it's a different type of living, meaning it's uh, not living in a condo or a co-op with a doorman, it's a different type of vertical living, money goes further, buys more in terms of square footage. And there's a natural, for lack of a better term, arbitrage that will bring markets close to one another. For example, if one wanted to buy a 5,000 square foot condominium in Greenwich Village today, if you can find one, you're going to pay in the neighborhood of $4,000 or $4,500 a square foot. In the townhouse market in Greenwich Village, you can buy the same amount of space for $3,200 a square foot, for example. It doesn't have a doorman, it doesn't have services, but when you start to understand the huge disparities in terms of price per square foot in environments like we're in now, if you're an investor, even if you're a user looking to build long-term value, you might want to pay more attention to sort of anomalies, things like Mm -hmm. this that will cushion you and create the opportunity for things to fall slower and rise faster when markets recover or start to move parabolically again. Interesting. Yeah. So taking a look at the rent per square foot on different asset types and seeing where the value could be and then capitalizing on that value. Yeah. It's really not rent per square foot, but really selling price per square foot. Selling price. Yeah. Sorry. My investor lingo was in there. Selling price per square foot. Okay, cool. Good stuff. You mentioned that your business partner is one of your oldest friends and you initially finance the real estate brokerage. Why did you do that? And how does that work? I mean, what type of structure did you set up? Well, we've been friends. We always invested together and he was actually in the apparel business and he wanted to, and we were real estate investors, he wanted to get into the brokerage world. So we both put money together to help create a company that I didn't really have particular designs on becoming active in it or not, but he's a smart guy smart as I am or smarter than I am. So I was sort of investing in him as much as I was in just creating an enterprise. And uh, 10 years later, I started working every day with him. But it was nothing more than we just cut together at the right time in the right place and both put in money to start an enterprise that he ran and I was going to be silent, but I'm no longer silent. Mm -hmm. When you left Wall Street as a trader, you said you initially started investing in real estate. What did you buy? I'm not a developer. I'm not a builder. Although I've purchased single family homes and apartments and fixed them up and sold them, that's not what I do. I just started buying good quality cap rate plays, meaning great locations or emerging locations. And a key rule for me is I don't need to be first. I need to be right. So in looking at emerging neighborhoods where I saw smart money, developer money, going in and building condominiums and hospitality, etc. That was early stages, whether it was the Lower East Side or the East Village, for example, before it was chic. I started buying individual units on condos, that those that existed, very small buildings, and just grew the rent roll, which improved the cap rate, and either are still holding them or sold them and redeployed my money as those markets started to mature. And I could grab higher capital appreciation pace by redeploying that money back into areas that I thought were still emerging as opposed to being more mature. You don't need to be first. You just need to be right. So you mentioned you look for developers who are building other condos and hospitality. So 
what are some other things you look for in order to be right about the market or the, well, the again, market or the neighborhood? Yeah. In New York, for example, there are some extraordinary developers, whether it's the related group or HFZ or property markets group or people that are just, they're very savvy, have access to a lot of money, have strong development track records. And although it's not telltale, if you see more than one of them starting to infiltrate an area, that would raise my eyebrows because right, wrong, or otherwise, my first inclination is that I think they're smarter than I am. And if they're moving into these areas, even if they're not spot on right, at least they're going to provide support from the standpoint of new residential options in the area, new hospitality options in the area, which brings in commerce. And once there's sort of a foothold there, meaning it's starting to be developed, I think one can mitigate their risk by following in their footsteps, so to speak. Now, their perspective they're developers, so they're in, they manufacture, build, sell it, and then they move on. But because the development cycle is so long and it's not like picking a stock, they're developing areas. I think logic should generally prevail that if there's smart enough money or enough smart enough money moving into a new area, let them be first, let them sort of break the ice. And it doesn't mean it's a telltale and, and, and an absolute that the area is going to mature into what they think it's going to be or what I think it might become. But like I said, I think it mitigates your risk a lot. And that's also a way of following trends. Let them sort of create the trend and then you hop onto it and ride it as long as you can. And as long as the trend is working in your favor, stay with it. Our audience, primarily real estate investors. As real estate investors, what should we know about investing in Manhattan? Because you've successfully done that and are doing it. Well, Manhattan is a market unlike any others in that over the past 10 years, the average annual appreciation rate for condominiums, for example, has been 12 or 13%, which is very high. And that's really not sustainable. But the thing that's interesting about Manhattan is if you want to be successful here, you pro forma yourself at a very low level. If you cut that in half and make the, or cut that in more than half and say, make the assumption that over a 10 year period, the average annual appreciation rate is going to be three or 4%, not 12 or 13% like it's average over the last 10 years. But combined with that, you have a very strong rental demand. So if you're buying a property and renting it, you're going to get three or 4% yearly rent increases. And after over a 10 year period, when you factor in your net free cash flow received, including your rent escalations, combined with three or 4% capital appreciation, if you're lucky enough to get participate in a run like we've had over the last 10 years, that's great. But what happens is at the end of that period, when you sell your property, a combination of capital invested based on your NOI and your capital appreciation, you can come out with 16 to 18% an average annualized rate of return which by any standards is very good in a market that's very stable. And this is an island, so there's built-in support. It's not like, not that there's anything wrong with being in Florida or Texas or wherever, but there's only so much you can build on this island. So as a result of that, it's sort of built-in price support and built-in rental demand. So you sacrifice near-term capital appreciation for long-term average annualized rate of return combining capital appreciation with net operating income. Mm -hmm. I love the way you, you think about that. It's really going to be really helpful for comparison purposes. How much do we need to invest in Manhattan? 
Well, it's a good question. The barrier to entry is pretty high because this is an expensive market, but I would say that the sort of the lower tier entry level, if you will, as an investor, and if you're buying single units, not houses, but they have to be condominiums, not co-ops, you have to be in the 1.2 to $1.5 million range as a sort of a starting point. That's not cash, that's selling price. But the number of condos that are available in that range, one-bedroom condominiums, are far and few between, frankly. But that's sort of the barrier to entry or a starting point. And then it's onwards and upwards from there. So let's see, 1.5, I just did 25% of that. So that's $375,000, 25%. What variables or factors would you look at if you were an investor who does not live in Manhattan? Let's say you live in California and you're deciding between some city in the South or Midwest and you just heard this interview and now you're considering Manhattan and you've got about $500,000. How would you think about where to invest? Well, a very large portion of my business is dealing with investors at, at this level and above. And there's no right or wrong answer. You know, everybody has their mission statement and what works for them. And if somebody's looking for near-term yield, meaning they're looking to generate 7 or 8% on their money, New York is not the place for that. But if one has a longer-term perspective, the capital appreciation pace in New York, in my opinion, will far outpace almost anywhere else in the country. As a matter of fact, there's really only two or three markets in the world that work like Manhattan, which is Manhattan, London, and I guess you could say Hong Kong. But one has to be prepared to live with cap rates, cash on cash, that are not exciting, 3 to 4% maximum. But the carrot is the hope which is usually reality, that the capital appreciation rate combined with your net operating income over time is going to create a rate of return that far outpaces what you can get in most other geographies. Now, the icing on the cake is if one happens to be fortunate enough to be a participant in the market when it's moving as briskly as it's moved in the last 10 years, then it's that much better. But I think as an investor, it's prudent to take a very conservative approach, one thing that's going to remain constant is if you're in the right neighborhoods is rental demand and rental income. Mm-hmm. The thing that's less predictable is what the appreciation rate in the market's going to be. But unlike other areas of the country, Manhattan real estate is really looked at as an asset class that is a diversification outside of equities, for example. And it's a place where investors from all over the world park their money, whether it's here or in London or in Hong Kong, for example, for the reasons that I'm explaining to you, that there's not wide open spaces. You can't continually make a lot more of this stuff, for lack of a better term, because we're on an island. And as a result of that, there's built-in price support, which creates an appreciation rate that's a bit different than most other geographies in the country. Are there opportunities for a value-add play similar to what I do in Texas where I buy apartment buildings, renovate the interiors, increase rent, and then I've got a higher value property? Of course, but that's really not for people that are passive investors. You really have to be here and on the ground. No, but that's in the investment side of our business, that's probably the most active area in the 8 to $30 million market, whether they're individual houses or small buildings that are bought 
refurbished, renovated, increase the rent roll and sell them. But the nuances of renovating in Manhattan or like in other places of the country, different everywhere you go, but rules and regulations and insurance requirements and how you work with contractors is a little bit more treacherous here. So virtually every day we get calls or meet with people that want to get into that type of investing. And as the romance of it wears off very quickly <laughs> when they realize what's involved, but those who have the stamina to understand what's involved in terms of being on the ground, the payoff is huge. Mm-hmm. But I think one has to have a very realistic expectation that it involves a lot of heavy lifting, but the rewards are massive. And it's not brain surgery. It's just something that you really have to pay a lot of attention to. And as an investor, clearly you can pay somebody to do this for you, but that person that you're paying to do this for you is going to be taking a large portion away from why you're doing this. It might might be the feeding purpose. So I think you understand what I'm saying. But to answer your question, the answer is yes. You can do here what you do in Ohio, but it's a little bit different. Uh Uh-huh. A lot different. (laughs) It's a lot different. The tenant landlord laws aren't as friendly either to investors in, in no, New York and Manhattan in particular is very tenant friendly, which has its positives and negatives. If you're a landlord, obviously it is entirely negative. And I will say that we've rent stabilization laws here that are very unique to New York. And we have tenancy that I won't go into that are very unique to New York. And the vast majority of these protected tenants understand the laws as well as many attorneys do. So navigating around them, you have to be very savvy. But with that being said, I like things with hair on them. And the more complicated it is, that's things that people overlook. And if you understand tenancy laws extremely well, as I do, then it creates a different set of opportunities because you can look at properties that a lot of people would overlook because they see some obvious roadblocks. But if there are ways to mitigate your risk, then again, it creates a much greater value add opportunities. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice ever. Well, there's a lot, but I would say don't over-negotiate. Don't try and buy it and get the last penny out of it, and don't try and sell it and get the last penny out of it. Everybody has to walk away a little happy, but I see people lose things on both sides of the equation because they have to win. Mm -hmm. And you win even when you don't win, so don't over-negotiate. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? suppose. All right, then I suppose we shall do it. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you want to hire the guy who I hire to help me with my real estate investing business, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's coachwithtrevor.com. The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at therealestateinnovators.com. All right, best ever book you've read? The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Best ever deal you've done? Purchasing a townhouse on West 10th Street in Manhattan. Why is that the best ever? Because it was purchased. We bought it for $9.5 million, had to spend about $2.5 million to get the tenants out, then spent another $8.5 million to renovate it, and I just got it put into contract for $37.5 million over a four-year period. 2.5 to get them out. Is that cash in pocket to be on their way? Yeah, cash in pocket, yes. Got it. You gave them a living situation too, so you can transition yep. into I imagine? Got it. Correct. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? I don't know. I'll have to come back to that one. <laughs> All right. What's the best ever way you like to give back? I give a lot of money away. 
money is wonderful, but even when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and have enough money so I could give it away and just support causes that are near and dear to me or near and dear to people that I like and support. And I'm very involved in philanthropy, and it's my biggest joy. Maybe think about one of the last deals you've done and what's something that if presented the same opportunity, you would have done it slightly different to optimize in the future. Just going back to my advice, which is don't over-negotiate. Again, it was a townhouse that I was representing. I represented the person that bought it, and I was representing them when they sold it. And I'm usually pretty forceful with people, and the first offer we got was an extraordinary offer. And I am a shepherd. I can't push people to do things, but I can be very persuasive when I want to be. I wasn't as persuasive as I should have been with my seller. I give advice like I'd want to get it, like I'd want to receive it. Mm -hmm. So I said, I would do this. I would take this offer. And I wasn't forceful enough. And we ended up selling it for about 6% less than our best offer, which was an extraordinary offer, like off the reservation. So my answer is not being forceful enough with my convictions because I'm not pushy. And you can never push. You can't make somebody do something that I think it could have been more persuasive with data. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you or your company? They can email me at rdankner at primemanhattan.com or they can call me at 646-485-5896 or they can visit our website at primemanhattanresidential.com. Robert, thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice from your ex-Wall Street trader days and how you've applied those lessons and that thought process to real estate, both building out the brokerage as well as investing and what you invest in. Also, the comparison for investing in Manhattan versus anywhere else in the world besides London, Hong Kong, but really comparing the Midwest and the South to Manhattan and what to think about when investing and pros and cons. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at therealestateinnovators.com.